Welcome to this new episode of the Other Podcast. I have a wonderful guest with me today. I have Felicia Murrell, um, all the way from the US. And she is sharing about race, culture, faith, and love. Keep your ears open, be attentive, because she brings some great wisdom. We'll be up in just a moment. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the ABBA Podcast with John McDonald. Thank you for tuning in. We really appreciate your support. John would love to hear from you. You can send comments and questions on Twitter at ABBA Podcast. You can also keep in touch through the Facebook page, the ABBA Podcast with John McDonald. Here's your host, John McDonald. So, Felicia, welcome to the ABBA Podcast. It's great to have you here. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be with you today. Uh, it's, it's just lovely to see your face again. Yeah. For those who are listening, Felicia and I are old friends. Less of the old, more of the friends. <laughs> <laughs> now, I'm guessing for most of you tuning in, you, you'd be wondering, well, who's Felicia Murrell? What, or, or Morell? I don't know how you pronounce it in America. I'm pronouncing it the Scottish way. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us a little bit about yourself, Felicia. Who are you? Where do you come from? All of that kind of stuff. Oh, gosh. Um, Icebreaker stuff, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I am a product of the American South. I was born in Washington, D.C., huh? spent my time between um, living in D.C., some with my grandparents, and but primarily in a small rural town in Johnston County, North Carolina, called Clayton. Okay. And, um, and I... I feel like I was um, a misfit in that I always felt like my body was bigger than small town living. So I lived the first 17 years of my existence trying to escape this small town, mm. um, which was very much plagued with, you know, a lot of um, racism. Um, oh. one you, of the didn't, big you didn't escape by going to LA for fame and fortune or? <laughs> no. <laughs> You know, I think one of the big things about the South is you you hear very often, particularly from the older generation, that the South worked because people knew their place oh. and oh. everyone had a place. And so even in my small town of Clayton, um, railroad tracks ran through the town wow. and the town was literally separated. Um, one side of the tracks was all white community and all of your businesses. So the grocery store, you know, the oh. eateries, everything was wow. on that side of the railroad tracks. Wow. And then on the other side of the railroad tracks was the all black community. And literally up until probably, I'm gonna wager early 2000s. Well, no, I will say mid 1990s. Um, it stayed segregated. Seriously? Black people lived on one side wow. of the tracks. Wow. White people stayed on the other side of the that, That's the kind of thing that people like us living in, across the other side of the Atlantic, we just see that in movies. You know, that's kind of like, um, you know, uh, oh, yeah. what would you call it? The Gregory Peck movie, you know? Um, yes. With Scout. Well, oh, for, very, very real reality. That Kill a Mockingbird. That's, that's the concept that we've been given. Yeah. But yeah. to actually hear that someone I know 
lived in that kind type of community. That's incredible. Yeah. To know that that and was. So, I mean, it's you know, so so that comes with its own set of biases, ideas, you know, thoughts yeah. from on both sides, on both sides, <laughs> and really in the in a town like that, the only time that you had any type of um, interracial mixing is sports. So, you know, of course, um, by the time I grew up, the high schools and the schools were integrated. Sure. And so, um, you know, so the schools, you went to school and, um, you know, with other races and things. And then uh, as you progressed to middle school and high school, you played sports. And that was really probably your first that, but I remember oh. even in kindergarten, my, um, you know, two of my really good friends, they were twins and uh, they were two white girls. And I remember one day asking if I could come over to play. And one of them said, oh no, my grandmother would never let you in our yard, you know? And I didn't even understand it. And then the other twin answered and said, oh, it's cause you are, you know, the N word, but it was just uh, such a, you know, uh, a casual, like, this is a word you heard all the time. And this uh, is what that word meant to them that, you know, I, standing back from it don't think they meant anything by it but of course well it's what they grew up with isn't it yeah you know That's so a lot of that so by the time i was 17 i was really ready to escape small town life and move to bigger cities um yeah. you know yeah so wow so i mean how did that affect you when you went to bigger cities when you mixed with perhaps yeah. more a multi multi-ethnicity Melting yeah, pot. Um, so my, my first large city that I went to was Nashville, Tennessee. I went to school at Vanderbilt University there. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, even there, I went to a predominantly white institution for university, but you had a, a cluster. It's like all of the black people on the campus kind of found themselves and stayed yeah. together um, for support and, you know, protection and that kind of thing. Sure. And, wow. but, um, and then, Doug and I got married and he went in the military. And so I can say for me, I think military life is probably the thing that really broke open a sense right. of, um, you know, friends beyond the walls, if I can use that uh -huh. term. Yeah. And yeah. Really wow. establishing not just, oh, I know a, you know, a white person or a Filipino yeah. person or whatever, but the relationships. And I mm -hmm. think the living together, the communing together, doing school with each other, you know, Doug was Navy, so that meant he went out to sea for six months at a time, and all the wives just banded together in support. Yeah. And wow. I think um, eating different foods, um, you know, in, in and out of each other's lives yeah. at home, you are then exposed to cultures beyond your own. That, um, that, that must have come as quite a shock to you. The, yes. You know, like... If, you, if you've not known that and suddenly you're thrown into it. Right. Oh. It is, I, you know, it is, shock is a very good word. I, I think what happens a lot of time is um, all you have is your perception. All you have is your culture, the way you do things. And so when you enter into relationship with people who aren't like you, you're really faced with two choices. You can either try to force that person to become like you, to do things your way, mm -hmm. to accept your point of view, your uh -huh. culture, how you do it, how you think, yeah. or you can allow for what I call unconditional acceptance, which is just letting them be them, just learning their ways, yeah. um, 
you know, asking questions in, in the place of safety, I think, um, observing, wow. you know, that kind of thing. And, wow. and when you're young and immature, you probably do it, you know, worse than you do it better. So I, um, you know, recall an instance with a really good friend. She had grown up in Florida. So, you know, white Southern yeah. lady had her idea of how you raise children, um, that kind of thing. And, and, and my version of the South, um, my brother and I were home at, you know, 10, 12 years old, taking care of ourselves. The neighbors would know that you were home. Yeah. They would check on you. You couldn't go out the door, you know, at, you know, once someone sporting you. And, uh... Yes. <laughs> kind of thing. But you were pretty much home. And my mom worked second shifts, which meant that she worked from like three in the afternoon to midnight. And then yeah. she would come in. And by the time she came home, we were in bed asleep. Yeah. Kind of thing. And, you know, but she prepared dinner for us before she went to work. So we just fed ourselves, did our homework, watched TV. And then at eight o'clock, all the lights go out and you go to bed. Yeah. And your neighbors are watching. So if the house doesn't go dark at eight, the neighbor is, you know, calling your telephone, like, turn those lights out and go to bed. <laughs> and that was how we were raised, right? Yeah. And so, I recall an incident where Doug was out to sea and our oldest daughter was, she was 10 at the time. And um, I left her in charge of my kids and went to Walmart to get groceries. And my friend stopped by and um, she stopped by. And because it was, you know, this friend that had, we are in each other's homes, blah, blah, blah. Our oldest daughter, didn't obey our rule to not unlock the door. So she looked out the window, saw who it was, opened the door. And so my friend asked, where's your mom? Our daughter told her. And instead of her talking to me um, and expressing her concerns to me, she called um, what we say in the States as CPS or Child Protection. Oh, Child Protection. Oh, wow. And wow. reported me wow. that I had left my kids um, alone. Wow. So... I had no idea this happened. And then one day, little white car pulls up out in front of our home and it's, you know, CPS and she has this report. And, um, you know, I told her very truthfully, yes, I'd left my kids. I went to Walmart. I was probably gone a good hour. Yeah. Um, they, you know, nap from one to three. I knew it would be safe. Nothing in my mind said yeah. this was wrong. She was 10, very mature. You know, we were like, that kind of thing. Yeah. So, of course, the lady, she talked with me. She talked to my oldest daughter. And then she explained the situation. She would have to write a report. There would be an investigation. And, and now I'm flipping out because yeah. she tells me the worst that, you know, they could possibly take my kids away. Doug is out to sea. So he's not home. It's just me. And so the first thing I do is I call my friend because... That's, you know, That's and good, yeah. I tell her and then she gets very quiet and she says, well, I have something to tell you. And she tells me that she's the one who called CPS. Wow. And I could not believe that she'd done that. I'm like, what, you know, and she explained that they're just too young. And, and, you know, so I go back with my brother and I were home. You no. Know, and. I end up having to call our pastor because I don't, you know, outside of her, I have no other support system in this town. Yeah. So I'll call the church, speak to the pastor. 
who is also white, but grew up in North Dakota. Right. And so he's a farm boy. So in North Dakota, they also are used to being left at home alone, very early age. You know, he sees he nothing driving, wrong with it. He was out it. driving the tractor when he was 10. <laughs> yes, which is exactly what he said. <laughs> really? You know? and, um, nothing came of that, but it was a big lesson wow. for me. And not even just race, because she was a white lady. He was a white man. So it wasn't like, oh, this is a white thing and a black thing. This also had to do with culture. Southern and culture. Yes, all of that. You know, like how that influences wow. what we think is right or wrong or fair or, mm. um, you know, all of those things play into our perceptions and our thoughts. Yeah, that's amazing. Wow. Yeah. Um, was, were those kinds of jarring experiences common for you or was that uh, was that just a one-off or no. <laughs> i could go on and on john we would just spend the whole day with experience after experience after wow. experience sadly you know um yeah. it's just it, it was really a way of life and so i think a lot of times when you you know people will say on social media, black people are tired or, you know, they're exhausted or I have race fatigue or whatever. Yeah. And, and I, I don't think, um, because a lot of times it happens so much that you just stop talking about it. It's just something that you come to expect. It's something that, um, and sadly, a lot of times when things happen, you, you always have to process like, is this a race thing or is this a, you know, something, yeah. is this a culture thing or is this, just ignorance you know what is it it's um wow because it's like always kind of there in your face and yeah. something that you're you're dealing with yeah. you know and the, yeah. the thing on top of that you're a woman you know and, and that's obvious but but it's like you know as a black person you're having to watch yourself and yes. am i you know and I, I don't like that phrase um knowing my place because that's that's a control of a, it's a horrible power trip but kind of like is this how these people have seen me and but then at the same time you're a woman who's saying i need to watch myself because you know unfortunately most of the the violence that happens random violence is on women yeah. so you've got this double issue yeah. going on where you're a woman and you're a black woman and so you have it coming at you from different sides you have both. I, I was telling Doug, I spoke yesterday, um, you know, for a church in Michigan because everything's virtual right now. Yeah. So, and um, before we got to the teaching time, we were just kind of introducing myself to them. And one of them asked a question and um, she asked a question. She said, Felicia, if you were organizing your bookshelf, um, would all the colors be grouped together or, you know, whatever. And I was like, oh yeah, for sure. Like not just together, they would be like gorgy bib together, you know, like the red, orange, yellow kind of thing. <laughs> and, um, and then I told this funny story about how, well, it was funny to me, but um, just a way of kind of opening up and sharing myself. And I, I told the story of, um, we had, Doug and I have a beautiful lady who comes to clean our house once a month. And, but she, when she cleans, she likes removes everything and she, you know, wipes everything down, but then she doesn't put it back in the right place. So yeah. for two to three days, I promise you two to three days after she cleans, I'm in here like 
cussing at the top of my lungs, basically, because my craft isn't in the right place, you know. That would drive me nuts. Right? And so I'm like, and then I have to dial back and like be grateful that I can even pay someone to yes. come clean, but still I want my stuff in the right place. <laughs> and, and so I'm expressing it like that, thinking nothing of it. And the tech team for this church was um, largely white. And so one of the ladies, she says, well, Felicia, tell us how you really feel. And I kind of <laughs> laugh, but later I was talking to Doug about it and I said, you know, Doug, it's a very real trope that if you get too expressive as a black woman, you immediately get thought of as a mad, angry black woman. Like, and it was, I meant nothing by it at all. Yeah. It was probably a little passionate, but I'm passionate about my things being in the right place. Yeah. But, you know, um, just again, those perceptions and thoughts of that you're always having to hold and carry with you in, yeah. in every space is definitely a real thing. Wow. Wow. So yeah. where did faith come into all of this craziness? <laughs> you know, I, I, I tell you, um, and you know that we share this in common, just our, the revelation of the Father's love. And, and I can tell you that really up until the experience of um, God loving me, not just, you know. Yeah, not just being God. <laughs> yeah, and, um, but allowing myself to be loved, receiving that love into every part of me. I carried so much anger wow. and I was mad and so much resentment um, for either, you know, being invisible because everyone's on the whole colorblind thing, oh, I, I don't see color, um, or being judged by my color without giving a chance to just be human, be who I am and nah. be, you know, you know, or, or somewhere in between the uncomfortableness of people not knowing what to say or how to treat you or, you know, do what I call you black or African-American or, you know, yeah. Yeah. you know, carrying the weight of, of all of those things. And um, even, you know, even our church experience, since the 90s has largely been interracial um, churches. We've been in, in lots of spaces very intentionally because what Doug and I said was we wanted our kids to have a model of the kingdom or a model of our perception of, you know, um, life that would represent all races and everything mm. and how you interact with other cultural cultures and and that kind of thing so mm. we very intentionally chose uh, multiracial churches See, that, that's, yeah that's really interesting because speaking to other some other black guys and stuff on twitter and different places they were saying that they felt as though they had to deny the real them in order to fit into a white church that you know they couldn't it was almost like they had to hide their blackness <laughs> You know. That's where I'm going with it, because I, I, I would totally agree with that a lot. Um, and I think what happens is black people, and I don't, I don't want to speak for all black people, but this is, this is just an observation, is that one of the things that black people have to get really good at is learning how to assess the room that they're walking in and to find, go up to the line of comfortable, comfortability. Okay. Yeah. And so, comfortability though. 
the room's yes. comfortability. And, well, you know, how, how comfortable is this white person or this other person going to be with me? So I'm not like, I'm not going to go full Malcolm X because I don't want to scare <laughs> them. You know what I'm saying? Like, so I'm just going to go here or, you know, there are some things that they may see, but not say because they realize it would make for a very uncomfortable situation. Yeah. And so instead of saying something, they're going to just be quiet. And I, I had this a couple of, maybe it was last two years ago. I'm pretty sure it was two years ago. Um, I had shared a very graphic picture on my social media page, but it was a true picture. It was a, um, one of the lynching postcards. Oh yeah. And, um, so someone that um, you know we very much admire um, private messaged me and asked me to take it down, and he told me that um, it was offensive to a lot. Of, that he he did first say I will say this he did first say that he understood the history behind you know that yeah. time and it was history and that it was offensive and um, that I should take it down. And I thanked him um, and just said, I want to acknowledge that I hear you. I hear your concern, um, but I'm not going to take the picture down. Um, and so it's a, you know, it's a lot of that. You navigate a lot of that. And um, even- well, Because that photograph the, makes white people uncomfortable. Yes, it I does. do. And, and I, w I wouldn't call myself a racist in any way, but it would still make me uncomfortable because yeah. it was people my colour who did that. Yeah. For, because of ideology. Yeah. You know, and so I'm not agreeing with the, the request to take it down, but I understand it because it makes me uncomfortable and it makes me want, it makes me have to ask questions that I don't want to ask and answer. Right. And you know, that's I think that's key, John, because so what, and I, one of the things that I don't think people realize is that being comfortable is a luxury of privilege, yeah. right? Because black people have not had the luxury of being comfortable. And so, and, and almost to the point that being comfortable keeps me stuck in a cycle of unconsciousness or un, being unaware or, you know, our new child oh, these days is being woke. It's kind of a position of subjection. Yes. Because you're being subjected to white people's feelings, women's yeah. desires, whatever. You know, and I look at that stuff and I think, well, I'm not culpable for that. But what, if, you, if you really look at it and, and, and look at the difficulties, I have benefited privilege from that situation. Right. You know, Glasgow was, my home city was built on slavery, cotton, yeah. tobacco, and all the ships coming in and yeah. with, the, with the, the, the captives from Africa getting unloaded yeah. at the docks in Glasgow. So, and a lot of these grand buildings and architecture, which are beautiful, was funded right. by, by that thing. And I love that I you mentioned that because in America, we, we narrow and we think that, you know, racism is only an American issue. And it's not, it's, it's affected our whole globe, you know? Yeah. And, but I think a lot of times what happens is when people start feeling uncomfortable, guilt shame and remorse detract from empathy and so the natural inclination is to you start overly apologizing or you say things like oh well that it's wasn't in the, me. It's in the past. back in the day 
want to create distance between what it brought up and you know and that and and if we would just sit in that feeling i think that is that's the alchemy that we need that leads to radical empathy you know and you know part of empathy is it, I say, I call it imagined embodiment, right? And so it's this thing where I I could never be you, like, no. but I can in some ways, particularly having you know read your stories and and known a little bit about you, then I can imagine what it was like to be that little boy, experiencing the life and the things that you had, right? And but also what happens with with radical empathy is it goes beyond me imagining how i would feel to me really hearing how you felt mm. and when i open my heart and myself up to hearing and holding how you felt i can never unknow what i know wow. and and in holding your pain and in holding your wound and in holding the, you know, the microaggressions and the slights and the, all of that and holding that, yeah. now I get to do something with it. Oh. I can either like turn my back to it and just say, oh, well, that was years ago, John, get over it. Or I can really hold the power of how it felt for you as a little boy living that life. Mm. And then from that, develop a sense of compassion and how I move forward, knowing that not only was that your experience, but there were probably several dozens or hundreds or maybe even thousands of other little boys who've experienced wow. that same wow. thing and how do we then begin to create a more compassionate world full of love you know how do we participate with love in a way that little boys don't have to have that again and so i think that's the thing is that if we would just yes this is uncomfortable but if we'll sit there for just a minute enough to allow it to do break us open on the inside so that love flows in and then from that place compassion is birth then we get to participating with love and in the dance of love in a in a more beautiful way you know wow. and i and i think i think that's what a lot of black people are really asking for it's wow. just can can you sit with it long enough to really you know never have to unknow what you now know well that that links into the quote that i've i've written it before and I, that I've got here from Martin Luther King when he said, you know, and if, you know, it says, I don't agree with riots. They don't lead to anything except violence. And, but then it says, but in the final analysis, a riot is the language of the unheard. And then he asks, what is it that America has failed to hear? It's failed to hear the plight of the Negro poor has worsened over the last few years. And it's, there's more than that, but, but that's, that's what you're saying. You know, like, we're asking to be heard, not not just listened to, but heard. Um, because listening, I think, is yeah, 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 yeah. Anyway, what's for dinner? You know, I listened, but I, I didn't hear you. You know, and what what you're describing there is is hearing someone's pain, hearing someone's desperation and frustration and wounding, and and I think more so for black people than for white people it's not just in your personal history it's in family history it's in community history because you know yeah i was bullied as a little boy but my whole community wasn't bullied whereas for black people their history is that our community was bullied 
Right. As a community, you know, and and yeah. that I, I remember when I heard that that from the Stanford speech that Martin Luther King gave, it really really hit me. You know, yeah. a riot is the language of the unheard. Yes. It just that blew me away, man. That guy was just he was somewhere else that <laughs> you know um, he really was. Yeah, but I I think I think it's hard for us to turn and face ourselves. And I think it's hard for us to deal with the fact that um, people that I came from, people of my history, my ancestry, my lineage, were that vicious and that cruel. Yeah. And and I think if we um, if we could own that and hold that with such gentleness and grace and with the same mercy um, that Jesus did, you know, when he was on the cross. I mean, I just, John, I think of it all the time of. Um, Jesus on the cross, looking, knowing in his heart that he came, you know, to, to give life and life to the full and all this kind of stuff. And then all of these people were looking at him with this crazy look going, crucify him, crucify him. And they're laughing and they're spitting and they're jeering and, you know, they're casting lots over his clothes and they're throwing stuff at him and sticking thorns in his head. And the, the worst, the monster, right? On full display, humanity's monstrous behaviors on full display. Mm -hmm. And Jesus looks out with love, with, you know, eyes brimming with tears. And he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And, and I think if we could hold with a sense of compassion, our monstrous behaviors, and the fact that in our unconscious state, in this, in this state of sleep, we commit acts of atrocity that we don't really know what we're doing. We don't, we don't know the pain. We don't know the generational trauma. We don't know the years of you know, effects that, that the consequences that will come from those mm -hmm. acts. But if we can hold that, yes, we have the capacity within us to be that monstrous. You know, mm -hmm. you saw it um, in the video of the police officer when he murdered George Floyd and he's kneeling on this guy's neck with his hands in his pockets, like eight minutes, 46 seconds chilling. I mean, like it was like he was just, you know, at a kneeling bench at a church or something, just while the life of a man seeps out below him, like it wasn't anything. Yeah. And, but we all have that monstrous capacity. And, and so I think if we can hold that, yes, we've been the monster, but you know, that is not the truth of our being. The truth of our being is that we're made in the image of love. And so when mm -hmm. we allow ourselves to be broke open and that love to come forth, then we also get to be the one like, you know, the crucified Christ who can say, oh. Father, forgive them. They do not know what they do. You know? It's, it's interesting. Sorry, carry on. No, go ahead. It's just interesting you talked about forgiveness because I'm going to, I'm trying to think how to phrase this because it seems to me that at times the church has thrown it back onto black people. You have to forgive. But, and I know, yes. and I know that the, the reality is that forgiveness doesn't, for you to forgive me for calling you names or whatever, doesn't need me for me to be sorry for it. Right. Because, you know, but, but then the fact is that if I'm not sorry, I will call you those names again. And again, and well, so let's how, go back to what we were talking about, that, about being uncomfortable. Yeah, but it's that tension let's, of let's like, let's it together. Because what happens forgiven, is, 
Yeah, the reason why there's a rush to forgiveness is because I don't want to feel uncomfortable. So if you forgive me, then I am absolved of any feelings of, you know, that I did something wrong or mm -hmm. that I'm uncomfortable or that I created a mess. It all goes away and we rush to fix. Yeah, it's like put the pain I, away, put the, the wounding away, put the offense away and just, you know, God forgave you, so you should forgive right. that. Um, and I, I don't think it's as easy and as straightforward as that. I don't. I, right. I think people's pain needs to be heard. Yeah. Um, and thank you for bringing that up because I, I, particularly being a black woman, I don't want people to hear that that is my suggestion. Sure. I, yeah. I yeah. understand what the power of forgiveness. Yes, but yeah. I also understand. I and I really feel like what we need is to learn to sit in some of this, and and we're afraid of it. We're afraid of what will happen if I really feel and and we don't we talk about feelings but we don't feel the feels. And know? what will happen if you tell me as a black woman and me as a white man, what will happen if you really tell me your pain? Yes. Yes. How, what, what do what does the white man do with that then? Me, white man, not I'm not talking about other people. What do I do with your pain then? And it's back to that um empathy, you know, yes. that you were talking about, the extraordinary empathy, where it's like I don't try and excuse it. I don't try and come. I don't even try and comfort you in it, yeah. and say, "Come on, it's everything's okay. You're not, you know, you're not that." That's, but but actually to just sit, like yeah. you say, and just say, "Man, that happened to thousands of people. That's that's not just Felicia's experience. That's not just Felicia's pain. That's a whole community's pain. That's a nation's pain." When you think of the people who were stolen from Africa, you know, um, and and I can't fix that. Right. So, and I think again, it's, it's back to that. Like, so I, I then, if I really listen to your pain and hear it, not just listen, but if I hear it, then I can't say to you, you need to forgive. Right. I don't have that right. Right. And, and I think. I, I think you, you don't even point it outward. You let it do what it does inward. You allow, mm it to have a work inside. And it begins to, you know, when, when I, now that I know that, now that I felt the depth and the weight of that pain myself, as much as I could possibly, you know, feel that, yeah. then all of a sudden, now I'm thinking about, you know, even voting about policies and legislations, like, am, am I choosing to vote for policies and legislation that continue to perpetuate that pain, mm -hmm. that harm. You know, am, am I thinking about the most, the outliers, the most marginalized people, the homeless, the whatever, but am I carrying the pain of that? Or am I just looking at what's best for me or, or what I'm afraid of or whatever? Mm -hmm. And when, when I allow that to touch me in such a deep way, I cannot unknow what I know. And then what, now that I know that, I begin to kind of see it here, see it here, see it here. And, and, and it informs how I move and live and have my being. Yeah. You know, it changes that deeply, or the hope is that it would, yeah. um, that you would allow it to carry forth in, in that kind of way. So how do you, as a, as a woman of faith, as a, a spiritual person, how do you hold the tension of that forgiveness, but the ongoing pain? Hmm of not just you yourself, but of the community that the race that you're a part of. 
yeah to hold that's, that tension. that's real john I, I and i don't know if i have um an answer other than just a, allowing it to be what it is you know yeah. it is as it is and and i i think i will tell you this of my own personal experience um I, I came to a point where I realized much of what I had learned in church was built on the pillars of certainty, right? And e even the idea of faith is more rooted in certainty that what I believe is certain than it is in faith, which is actually mystery, right? So the invitation to faith is the invitation to awe and wonder and mystery and the unknown. But even in that, a lot of circles we try to take take the mysteries and unravel the mysteries and turn them into certainties yeah. and and so as long sorry but in but when i was speaking with phil drysdale he said to, he said to me you know the opposite of faith is certainty <laughs> so, so sorry for interrupting but just i know you know phil so that i just wanted to i mean it's a very it's a very real thing because I believe life changes when you can let go of the pillars of certainty. And I feel like I reached this point where that is something that Spear asked of me was, would you be willing to unclench these pillars to let him go? Like how Sam Samson, you know, pushed the pillars yeah. over and I had to knock them down. And, 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 but that's a real scary thing because, you know, you just like wide open with nothing to kind of grab onto yeah. except for love. And then love becomes the structure that governs freedom, you know, when you let go of certainty. But in church world, we've not been taught how to relate to love or to relate in love. We've been given formulas. You do this, 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 and this, and then it'll be X, Y, Z. And then when it doesn't be X, Y, Z, we like get mad at God and we blame God. And, and so I think for me, what happens is, when I let go of certainty, I realized that love was inviting me into a very active and present relationship where I could hold that I am in pain, that I am afraid, that I am scared, that I am angry, or that I, I am, I am, just I am. And that I can hold whatever comes after I am. And in my holding I am, it gives you the freedom to be, you know? and and then also in sitting with love inside of I am in that space and allowing love to do what it does inside of my heart, then the truth of my being begins to align with how I walk that out in my day to day. And sometimes that might mean I need to sit with this for a while before I can move on to forgiveness. But forgiveness for me, it, it, part of it is realizing that the person who has done an act towards me has no emotional capacity to hold my pain. They have no emotional capacity to hold my personhood. They don't have the emotional capacity. It does not mean um, that I have to deny that they did something wrong, but it allows me to still see that they're made in the image of love and, and that they are coming short to the fullness of that image. Yeah. You know, yeah. And when I understand that, then I get to respond not based on their character defects, but based on what love has shown me. Wow, that's incredible. I, yeah, I think that's, what would the world be like? What would, just what would church world be like if we embraced that uh, concept? Yeah. Never mind the rest of the world, <laughs> you know? Um, so 
kind of where where is that where has love led you in terms of faith and understanding God and all that kind of stuff? <laughs> you know what? I honestly, oh my gosh, I I honestly in the last four years watching the church in America, I should say church in America, respond to our uh, current president. Um, I have been quite disillusioned and saddened and to the point that I think I could have lost my faith. I'm using air quotes. Yeah. Yeah. My faith had I not two things have kept me. One is, uh, the revelation of the father's love and having that personal love letter on my heart. Once you encounter love that deeply, it changes you and nothing, not even people's crazy responses can take that away. I mean, that has been an anchor, like, like anchor, like that is my, every day I'm waking up, I have a meditation cushion and I sit on my mat in in my church language, we would call it soaking prayer. Some people call it contemplative prayer, whatever, but I sit there um, every morning for 20 to 30 minutes in silence. And I literally like, I open my hands in a posture of surrender. I open my heart and I just, I point my head, you know, upward. And I just say, Father, I receive your love today. Mm-hmm. And I imagine just like a waterfall of love just wow. raining into me. And then when I get up from my mat, I ask the, I ask the spirit to show me how to participate with love today. What is that? What is the yes for today? What does that look like for me? Mm-hmm. And so that it's a very active dance and that is the only thing that's kept me. And I believe firmly in the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And beyond that, I have no beliefs. Like I, like I, I'm done. I'm done. That's the end of it for me. And, <laughs> but I believe so deeply in the revelation of love that changes. I know who I was before that encounter yes. and like never want to be that person again. Okay. Never want to be her. And the, the first year of Trump's presidency, I was so angry, John. And I felt that old stuff coming up. And I was like, mm-hmm. whoa, wait, no, 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 no. Mm-mm. I cannot lose the, the person that, that, that love has transformed me to be. Yeah. Like, whatever. So I've got to, I, and, and that is faith for me. Like, faith for me is love. I mean, I, I don't know. But inside of that, it has given me the freedom to not fear um, other people's faith or whatever. It's just, it's a beautiful dance and I'm excited to be in it. But if you ask me to define it, I I could not, you know what I'm saying? Like I have a friend, she told me the other day, she said, you should be a Buddhist. And I'm like, I don't know what I am. <laughs> I can tell you two things. I know love is real. I believe in the incarnation, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And I believe in the Trinity. Like, I mean. <laughs> yeah, I'm with you. I'm, 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 on, that, I'm on that train. <laughs> it's so, it's, I, and I, I know that, particularly having been a pastor, having been a church leader, having, you know, been an itinerant speaker and all that, for people that are not yet there, they can see some of the things I say or post or whatever, and, and it scares them. I get a lot of private messages, and 
and I'm okay with that. I I really believe. I'll need to send you more private messages. <laughs> <laughs> but I believe that we're all on a journey home to love. You yeah. know, and and I remember Paul Young saying this once. He said, "Some people on their journey, they're like at camp A, and some are at B, and some are at C. And when you get to B, you think everybody at A is crazy." And, you know, they need to get on the train. That's true. And you're looking at people at sea going, they're crazy. What are they talking about? That's I'm not going there. <laughs> they're, they're heretics. They're heretics. Until you get to sea. And then you're like, oh. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And, and so that gave me such great comfort. Because, and it gave me a real deep compassion for people. The mm. ones who were blowing up my inbox, you know, yeah. telling me that I left the faith. Because I realized, oh, maybe, well, maybe I'm still at A and you're already at B. And I just, when I get there, I'll change my mind. I, I'm not going to yeah. tell you where you are on your journey. But what I'm saying is we're at a different place. And I can allow for that. And so I understand that you don't get what I'm saying because you're not where I am. And when, you know, with some, some people hold on to their certainties. And like you say, love has has in love I've learned not to criticize those people because I once held to those same certainties yeah. with all my might and I defended them and I argued for them yeah. and now I don't. This happened to me about and I don't, I don't want to co-op your podcast but no, it happened no, to me just, about inclusion when I, re I remember the day um, I asked I was walking and I asked the Holy Spirit like I need you to tell me what, what you feel about homosexuality, okay? I, like, I need to know. I mean, it was kind of like that, right? I, and I got nothing. I heard nothing. And then another day I was walking and I posed the question again and I really heard so strongly in my heart, like, Felicia, people matter. People matter more than credo, more than what you believe. And I am more for people than I am against something. So it wasn't like this, oh, you know, like uh, I needed a certain, like I need you to yeah. say, it wasn't that. It was just, I am for people. But for me, it, it like, I cannot tell you what it did. It was like a huge whoosh of love or something like for all people. Yeah. And that was the beginning for me of becoming more form affirming, more inclusive, just I realized that I had made God's table very narrow. Mm. And and I felt like I was getting an invitation to open up, mm. you know, my stance and That's to awesome. widen the table. And I, and that was the beginning. It's been a process since then. Yeah. But I feel that way. I I have to feel that way about even people that believe differently about systemic racism, about my skin color or whatever. I have to allow for their complexities, their journey. Um, as hard as it is, it's hard. I, I mean, I'm not gonna sugarcoat it at all, but I realized that not, not everyone will see. And if I wait for the world to get to the place where everyone's on board and agree that, you know, racism is wrong or whatever, whatever, we won't get there, you know? But well, what I can do is participate with love in my part. Interesting you say that. There's, on one level, the world does say it's wrong, but then there's a level where the world doesn't do anything to change it. That's my observations where it's like, I'm not racist, of course not. You know, I, 
I've got nothing against black people. I, you know, like I'm very friendly with the Asian guy in the corner shop. You know, kind of. But what are we doing as a society to change the institutional structures which um, disadvantage black and other coloured people uh, way beyond the disadvantage that white people experience? You know, and I think I think that's an interesting. That might be another podcast, but. <laughs> but that, and that goes back to what I'm saying about that embodied state of radical empathy, where once you see that, like you can't unknow it, and then it begins to inform how these institutions system. But the reality is when I'm comfortable, I mean, this is just even naturally, right? We eat, we get comfortable, we go to sleep. We lay down in, our, in a comfortable bed, we, we go into a relaxed state, and we go to sleep. And so comfort does something to send us into a sleep state. And so if the institutions and the systems support and hold up my level of comfortability, then I'm gonna be more in a sleep state than, I'm, than I am going to be awake. Something has to jar me so that I see how these institutions and the policies and the system are affecting and harming other people. And then when I see it, I also have to care enough about it. We've been seeing it and hearing about it across the world, you know, from from antebellum, you know, lynchings, the civil rights in the sixties. I mean, people have been lynched in my lifetime, in right. my lifetime, you know. Yes. Um, it's through Jim Crow and and redlining, you know, Rodney King, George Floyd, and all the others that many people don't hear about, Breonna Taylor and people like that, you know, but. And I, I remember here in this country, you know, I've, I've, the so-called race riots in Toxteth and Bristol and Side and Handsworth and, you know, and it blows my mind they are described as race riots. But actually when you dig deeper and you speak to people, it's actually to do with di economic disadvantage, poor housing, poor job opportunities, youth alienation, resentment at no one listening to the people's voices about their situation and their communities. Um, and it's just, I just find it incredible that hundreds of years later, we're still talking about the same issue and it's coming round again and again. You know, I remember the outcry over Rodney King and then they all died down. George Floyd is already becoming old news. Yeah. You know, um, yeah. and, but, but what we don't understand is that this is, these are daily experiences for black people around the world not just in the US, but in the UK, in Africa, and, you know, Antipodean countries. You know, I speak to people, especially on the West Coast of Australia, who are horrified by the racism that they experience living there. Yeah. You know, so it's not, this is not a US thing. And we, and because, you know, as a white man, I, I'm, I'm privileged, not only am I white, but I'm male, <laughs> you know. And so I, I, but I can sit and I can pontificate and say, that's terrible. You shouldn't treat people that way. And then I go downstairs and have my dinner. Yeah. You know, and it's, it's, how do we hear people's voices that, and I'm not, I'm not saying you have the answer. I'm just, it's a kind of, it's just out there. It's like, how do we hear people and how do we respond to what we hear rather than just, because I think, um, I think sometimes 
the white community responds very patronizingly, very condescendingly to black people because it's like, oh, they're open. You know what black people are like? They're so excitable, kind of, you know, that kind of attitude. Um, and it just blows my mind that it's, it's easy to dismiss all this by just calling it a race riot. Yeah. But what I noticed in many of the, the riots and so-called riots in the US and here in Britain, there's a heck of a lot of white people in there smashing windows and pulling statues down. I think it's really stunning, um, you know, uh, Jamar Tisby, who wrote the book, The Color of Change, he always says, racism doesn't go away, it just adapts. Hmm. Racism doesn't go away, it adapts. And, and I, I think uh, when you follow the history of the language, even back to Europe, um, the whole idea of lynching actually came from Europe because in Europe they would, is it tar and quarter? Is that what tar, is tar and, tar and feather. Yep. Yeah, tar, yes. Okay, so that idea is what led to lynching and, you know, was adapted into lynching in the United States. They still do that and in South Africa and places. And and so you see this adaptation, yeah. you know, over and over. Wow. I remember, wow. this is crazy, Doug and I went to Rome um, for the first time. We've been three or four times now, but for the first time in the early 2000s. And um, some friends of ours were coming out of this restaurant and they were like, oh, you should eat there. It was, and I, I should add that they were white friends for the story. But um, they were coming out of this restaurant and they were like, oh, you guys have to eat there. It was amazing, definitely go. And so Doug and I, you know, we uh, opened the door to go in and we're barely in the door and someone yells, we're closed. And so uh, we close the door back. We're like, oh, okay. So we close the door, go back out. And we decide we're going to eat there for dinner since we'd missed the lunch hour. That's in our thinking, we just missed the lunch hour. Um, we go on. So that night we get dressed and we go back to that same restaurant for dinner. We go in and, you know, people are being served. Um, and we wait. And you can see hesitancy you could look in the eyes you could tell something's going on but we're in Italy we're not thinking yeah. anything about it so after quite a long wait at the maitre d table someone finally sits us and then so we get seated at a table and you can see people looking around and and then there's this huddle of, of the wait staff and they're kind of pointing our way over their shoulder and they're talking and I told Doug, I said, I think they're trying to decide who's going to wait on us, right? And so finally someone comes over, Doug orders a Coke, I order a sparkling water, and it takes forever for it to come. And there's more talking, there's more looking, and all of a sudden it clicks. Back to the lunch and them yelling, we're closed, back to the huddle. And I was like, Doug, and I, you know, of course, we're the only Black people in this restaurant. And mm -hmm. And I said, I don't think they want to serve us. And so finally, after another long wait, um, when someone comes over, Doug says, um, we, we will just take our check. And he goes, the, the guy goes, oh, grassy, grassy, go, go, like that. He wouldn't even let us pay for the wow. water and the Coke. Wow. And as we're leaving, um, someone says, uh, child pygmies or whatever, you know, like that. And 
And I was like, oh my gosh, like, I mean, we get this day after day after day in America. We're traveling. I would have never expected this in Italy. And, and then later people were like, oh yeah, that's pretty common, you know? And so you, you learn these things. See, I don't see that. Yeah. I don't see that. That doesn't happen to me. Right. No. And it's, you know, I, Paris the same. I mean, it's just been, wow. you know, and so literally now when Doug and I travel, we have to not only do, you know, extensive research of the tourist places we want to do and all that, but we have to look at what is the racism in this area that we're going to, wow. are we going to be okay with where we stay in the hotel? You know, how are we going to be treated? It's like, it's like the green book, isn't it? Yeah. You know, that's yeah. crazy. Yeah. I remember oh, watching that movie and just, I was horrified. Right. Oh. Right. Um, but when you're distanced from that, none of that has to inform your way of life. You don't no. even think about it, you know? And so some of it is not willful. Some of it is for sure. But some of it is just being distanced from the lived reality of it. Yeah. But that's why when people share their stories, if we would take the time to really hear their stories and then to to never unknow what we know once we've heard that story yeah. and allow their lived experience to help inform us it would make a difference in how you know we move and act in the world wow wow it's interesting just we've been talking about faith and the race and all that kind of thing i was reading a, a quote by a guy called w.e.b dubois um he was he was a for those listening he was a his, american historian sociologist and a campaigner for American, African-American rights is how he described himself. And he quotes this German historian called Theodore Mommsen. And this is what Theodore Mommsen said. It was through Africa that Christianity became the religion of the world. And which makes sense when you think about it, there were Africans present on the day of Pentecost. We know about the Ethiopian eunuch that Philip spoke with. But yes. if that's true, if, if Christianity came to the world through Africa, how did it become so white? Yeah. Isn't that interesting? I mean, even that you take, you look at the geographical region of Nazareth, you know, and you know that, you know, Jesus himself would have been, you know, more brown skin, ruddy. You know what I'm saying? I mean, the a, li a little bit more than just olive colored. <laughs> you know, yes. Trying to be nice, John. Trying to be nice. <laughs> you know, but we, we move from that to even, I will tell you this of myself literally just learned or just came to the realization earlier this year that Augustine and Origen were African. Yeah. Like, I mean, in my head. Well, yeah, Origen's from Alexandria. He, you know, he. Just yeah. the way that we have so made Christianity, Christianity Eurocentric and. Yeah. and I, don't get me wrong. I understand there was the split between the Eastern Church and the Roman Church. But it still doesn't explain why the Roman Church became the dominant church, not just in the Western world, right. but but white Christianity dominates Africa, it dominates India, the it Philippines, does. all of these places. You go to any church in, the, in a lot of these places and the worship will be as though you're in Bethel. The preaching yes. will be as though you're in Toronto. Yes. Um, really I've actually this year started doing a lot of reading of old um, African religious tradition wow. uh, Christian texts going back and it's been so fascinating like and I I mean yeah I'm I'm really proud of myself for going back because I think so much of 
the African religions and things were demonized and mm. it was something that was held at bay. Well, things like the drums and all of that kind of stuff. Yeah, yes. I've heard all of that chatter. Right. <laughs> you know. But yeah, just all the way back, um, it, it's been a, a lot of really great reading and things for me. I've been really excited about reconnecting with that that part of my Christian mm. heritage, you know. So. Yeah. But I'm, I mean, because I know you and, and the whole George Floyd thing exploded, I was kind of like, you know what, I'm actually quite ignorant. I know little bits and pieces, but I'm actually quite ignorant about black faith. And so you put me onto that um, course with Trip Fuller. Um, and I've got loads of stuff from him now, like videos. and But but I'm fascinated because in, in white theology and black theology or black faith communities and white faith communities, there are totally different theological discourses and dialogues going on. You know, I guess, I mean, I get it's basic, but kind of white evangelicalism focuses on the personal side of, of redemption. You know, it's the emphasis is on evangelism, salvation, individual holiness and all that. And, and the book is a devotional that inspires believers. But, but black theology is more of a, a theology of redemption and justice. And I don't just mean about color. You know, they, they see faith as, as not an individual thing but as a communal, you know, redemption and justice are communal um, theologies, not individual uh, experiences necessarily. I think I liked what John Perkins said. He said that black theologists have a very different take on redemption and justice in part because much of it has been developed in response to white oppression. Um, I know it's a huge topic, but can you shed, can you give us some of your thoughts on that, Felicia? Yeah, I would agree with that. I, I'm, I'm probably, a lot of my Christian thought processes have been formed more in interracial spaces than in Black theology. But just in my, even my recent studies, uh, James Cone, hmm. who is, you know, like the, the, one of the founders of Black liberation theology, that yeah, is yeah, largely, <laughs> <laughs> large, largely his premise. Um, uh -huh. it, you know, just the, the liberation, the redemption, and the justice of the Black race um, through that. And, um, you know, so yeah, for sure you see that in a lot of Black preaching. Doug's background was more um, raised in the Black Baptist Church and, you know, in that. And so he remembers a lot a lot more of that than, than I do. So I would be remiss to try to speak to it. Since he, would, he would more be like where MLK and people like that are coming from. Yes. Yeah, wow. that's really him. So mine has been a lot of just study after the fact. I, I feel like having grown up in small rural North Carolina and then through school, I was uh, a very smart kid. So I, I was usually one of the only one or two black people in a, in a classroom with a lot of white kids. And, and, but what it did for me very early on is that I had to learn how to assimilate to be accepted. And I had mm -hmm. to really let go of my blackness um, in order to fit in. And I became much of a chameleon, um, code switching in the talk. Yeah. So if I were with my friends in the neighborhood on a Saturday, I would sound completely different than I would in a classroom yeah. kind of setting and that. And so one of, the, one of the good things for me that I feel like um, 
has happened in Trump's world has been the invitation to return to my full self, including my blackness that mm. I had to lay down to fit into other spaces. And so I've, I've spent a lot of time reading. Um, you know, I've spent a lot of time with Howard Thurman because I, again, mm -hmm. I, I don't want to lose um, my anchor in love. And so I've been looking for wisdom and the voices of elders who are also led by love. Mm. And Howard Thurman is, he was, he was that and more. Right. And so for me, he has been um, a profound guide for me. He was a, um, you know, a Christian mystic and a prophet. He, um, I've heard know, the name, he, I haven't read his stuff. Oh my gosh, John. But you know, what I'm doing, you know what I'm going to do when I get off this podcast. <laughs> exactly. He was the one who actually introduced uh, Gandhi to Martin Luther King. Oh, and, wow. Yeah, so, oh. yes. He, uh, Howard Thurman, pastored the first interracial um, church in America in 1953. Wow. Yeah, 53 in San Francisco. Both the church and the leadership was interracial, but his was the first. And he pastored that church for a decade. Um, you know, he was one of the first people. He was dean at Boston University, Morehouse University, dean of the chapel at Boston University, Morehouse University, and Howard. And he introduced meditation um, in the liturgies. He introduced like liturgical dance and art and all these kinds of things in his preaching. If you ever get a chance to listen to, I think both Sounds True and Audible has some of his preaching, but his voice is, is, is a deep baritone voice with that James Jordan kind of cadence to it, you know? Um, but, oh my gosh. Um, so I begin and end my days reading um, writings of his and, and everything and that, uh, yeah, so. Wow. Yeah. That's awesome. So I kind of lean more towards Thurman than Cone because Cone is just like, just blow everything up kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> but it's I, not from X to Thurman's MLK. <laughs> again, I take nothing from Cone. I take nothing from it. I understand. I've got a couple of those books. I've not read them yet. Yeah, you know. And I, I remember one time um, Malcolm telling. Yeah, Malcolm X told Martin Luther King that people would not hear Martin Luther King without Malcolm X, mm. that the world needed both. Yeah. And that it was, the, it was the fire and the radicalness of Malcolm X that caused the white community to at least to listen, listen to. Yes. Wow. That's really interesting, isn't it? And it was interesting because obviously, I mean, Malcolm, Malcolm came and on you know nation of islam and all of that kind of stuff and then he split from them uh but it was interesting just to see that these two different faiths kind of connecting and 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 this intersection of of justice you know and yes. and it was like you know what i i don't agree with your with islam or i don't agree with your christianity but but i agree with you that there needs to be justice for the black man and women you know and that i just think that's an incredible story yeah. yeah, which for me, that's huge because what it does is um, it shows, it lifts humanity, you know, that we, and I think that's the thing, Thurman was very much 
um, interfaith. He was intercredal. You know, there was, um, there's a story that's told of when he was the dean at um, Boston, there was a rabbi that, that was in the graduate program there. And he would drive in every day for school and he needed a place to do his prayers. But huh. in the chapel, there was a large cross and he felt uncomfortable playing, praying in the chapel because of the cross. Well, and he would go down to the basement and find a corner and do his prayers. And one day Thurman showed up, the, the rabbi didn't know who Thurman was. He mistook him for a janitor. And um, he said, why don't you go to the chapel to pray? So he said, just go check it out. So when he goes in there, there the cross has been removed. There's two lit candles and the Bible is turned to Psalms. I think maybe 139, either 130 or 139, the one that says, where will I go from your presence? Mm, and, uh, and he has, Thurman has created this place for the rabbi to pray. Wow. And then, um, and so they started making this thing where at the end of the rabbi's prayers, he would then put the cross back up for the Christian students. And he went to Thurman and he said, um, he, there was a class he wanted to take, but he was afraid that the class would lead him out of his Jewish faith. And he wanted to express his concerns. And Thurman said to him, he, he stood in silence for a while. And then at the end, he asked him, he said, do you trust the Holy Spirit? But he asked him that word, you know, Holy Spirit in Hebrew, like, nah. is it Ruach HaKadosh? Yeah. Sorry, you guys, for butchering that. But, um, and the rabbi said he looked up and he literally ran out of the room. Like, how how could this man, this Christian, because of course in his perception, everything about Christianity is all, you know, bad. Yeah. And here was this man, this Christian man, who, who could speak to him in his faith, in his language, wow. so that he heard. And he said he was haunted for days just by, do I trust the Holy Spirit? Do I trust the Holy Spirit? Wow. And then he, he did end up taking that class. But here was this man who was so rooted in his own faith that he could give someone else the freedom to be rooted in theirs. And that, that's the beauty. And I, I, I find that that's something, you know, speaking with Phil Drysdale, that's something that I think love is doing where it's not so much about me changing you and converting you. And, but it's about you, it's about me enabling you to experience love and see where yes. love leads you. Yes. You know? Um, and, and I'm getting more comfortable with that. Uh, yeah. There are years where I wouldn't have been comfortable with that at all because, man, this guy's going to hell and that's a whole other story. You know, if God saved Adam from eternal damnation uh, when he put him out of the garden, then, yeah, I don't see how that relates to him throwing him into eternal damnation at the end, you know? It's like, but anyway, that's another story. But, um, but I, I think that, you know, just even that thing about faith, I think the same thing with race and how we relate to one another. Can I be so rooted in my blackness that I can allow someone else the freedom to be Filipino or white or, you know, whatever their culture, like, mm. can I be so rooted in me that it births freedom in someone else that, you know, I, I don't have to try to force you to assimilate into any other thing that there is that we can be and we can exist without fear without the need to dominate or subjugate together, you know? Yeah. I, I hope that we get there. And I think, I think that's the other way around as well. Can, can the white community um, allow you to be black? 
you know, can, can I allow you when, when I'm with you and Doug to, to let you and Doug be black and not have to accommodate my whiteness? Because you're not white. So why should you have to accommodate my whiteness? Yeah, of course, we'd be sensitive to each other and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, why, you know, it's, yeah. it's a journey. Um, but I think yeah. you're right, Felicia. I, th I think, you know, what you said at the beginning, love is the only way to walk it, to that journey. Yeah. No, I, my hope and my prayer is that people understand the power of love. I think love has been sold a bad bag of tricks, you know, yeah. and it feels... Uh, weak and limp and like a doormat and it's none of those things Not it is all. I mean when I read Martin Luther King when I think about even all of the people that endured the sit-in and the hoses and the you know German shepherds and John Lewis on the bridge and yeah. all, all of those people were so informed by love but that's not weak you don't endure things like that you know well look at I, Jesus yes you know, who's, I guess, the ultimate example of being led by love. Yes. You know, and pain and suffering that love, and he held it. Yes. And he stayed in it, and he sat in it, yes. you know, yes. over a period, not just like an incident, but over a period. And it's just like, and he didn't tell me that love is weak. Right. He didn't rush to fix it. And I think that's a big thing because I, I keep, the other day I was reading, um, I don't dust that little Bible thing off that much anymore, sadly, but I have to be reading. <laughs> I have to be reading the one, you know, where, where they were mocking Jesus and they were telling him to come down and save himself. And I'm like, man, society has been so ingrained in this. Let's hurry up and get it over, quick yeah. fix. And, but he didn't rush to fix it. He stayed right there in it until it did what it was meant to do. Until he trusted love. He yes. trusted love. Yes. Yeah. And I, I've, yes. I've come to understand, Felicia, the most powerful force in the universe is love. Yes. Um, I, I agree with you. I agree with Al Black. Love is the answer. <laughs> I don't know if you've heard that song, but, you know, Al nailed that. Love is the answer. Yeah. Um, and... I, I just wish people could change their perspective of what love is, especially Christian believers. Yes. You know, yes. they think love is some sort of feminization of faith, but, but it's not, you know. God is love. Yeah. <laughs> you know, whatever you conceive God of as, right. the, the, de the one definition that we have is he is love, or she yeah. is love, or it is love. Right. You know, um, that can't be a feminizing effect in the, in the sense that people mean weak and ineffective because that's I don't find feminism a femininity weak and ineffective some of the strongest people I know are women morally emotionally some of them are quite strong physically as well <laughs> <laughs> you know yeah. we haven't even touched on has both, you know, that masculine energy and the feminine energy, um, you know, sometimes one overpowers the other, but when they are in tandem together, it's beautiful expression that's unleashed. I can't know? keep up with Fiona's feminine energy. <laughs> she, she runs far ahead of me. <laughs> you know, but, and that's a whole other issue, isn't it? The whole women issue. And right. maybe we can do, maybe we can do another chat on that. Oh, wouldn't that be great? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Women, womenist theology. <laughs> but it, it is a beautiful dance. I, um, I hope that we get there. I really do. I'm, I am thankful for the moment. I think the moment has created an invitation. And then what we do inside of the opportunity and the invitation is really all on us. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. So, I mean, obviously, I think there is an, an ongoing invitation to, to embrace love and be a part of love. Yeah. But have you any thoughts on how people do that? I know that's a huge question. Um, but any, any thoughts on how do people yield to love, if you like? Oh, yeah. Sorry, I'm putting you on the spot here. It's <laughs> <laughs> a great question. I, you know, I think about that all the time, honestly, because I, I, I lean somewhere in between. Um, it's very easy to come up with a perceived formula or mm. whatever. Um, it's very easy to hand someone the answer. Yeah. And one of the things that I I realize in charting in from certainty into the unknown, into the place of mystery, is that there isn't a knowing that I that I kind of put my hand in, um, and and that that looks different for different people. And for for me, what I began to say to people is, find the place where all of your walls come down where you are the most vulnerable and the most open. For some people, that is a walk on the beach. I imagine for Fiona, Fiona it might be on her paddleboard. You know, <laughs> um, for some people, it's a hike. It's, it is watching a sunset or the sunrise or being with the redwood trees or whatever. But the place of vulnerability where all of the walls and the defenses come all the way down yeah. And in that place, love can come rushing in. Oh. And I think the more we connect with the place of surrender, the place where we are the most vulnerable and the most open, where we take the longest, deepest inhales, and we can fully breathe and allow that breast to roll around our cavities, love fills those spaces. Oh. And when we surrender to love, even sometimes without our conscious awareness that we are surrendering to love just in the act of that, love changes us from the inside and and all of a sudden you know you, you start thinking differently you start responding differently and it's this dance i mean you take a step forward and two steps back and sometimes you don't you know you abandon the ways of love and yeah. you know and then sometimes you realize like oh it's like this is that moment like i can either leave with love or i can you know act crazy. Oh, I have, I get to choose, you know? Um, and so, so I'm hesitant to say it's this, 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 yeah, but I yeah. do think it is that most surrendered place. Um, for some people, it's on a yoga mat. For some people, it's just yeah. being with their dog or their kids or whatever, and love comes rushing in, you know? Yeah. Um, so I just encourage people to say yes to love but i think once you start realizing that love has changed you or is changing you then like for me what i want to consciously do is when i am with people is to deposit little mm -hmm. sparks of love because we're all burning bushes right mm -hmm. and so if i can take my little spark of love 
and let it ignite a flame of you, then love will do what love does. Wow. That's awesome. I think that's a great place to to stop. Um, Felicia, thank you so much. I've so enjoyed catching up with you. Um, loved some of the little pearls of wisdom that you dropped in there inside, and, and hearing your heart and, and yeah, it's just wonderful. Thank Thanks you so much. Thank you so thank much. Thank you for having me, Dan. It was great to be with you today. Thank you. Thank you.